0: Welcome to the Movement PT Coffee Cast, where we sit down and talk about physical therapy, health, and whatever else comes to mind during our coffee-infused conversations. what's going on guys welcome back to the movement pt coffee cast my name's dalton and with me as always is my beautifully bearded friend william william how are we doing today yeah i can't complain Dalton. not I, I i'm currently my second cup of coffee so yeah. i'm pretty yeah. wired for this episode how about Good. you i'm i am the same i'm excited um i have a question for you though before we get started um so we're officially done placement and do we still call ourselves students like what do we what do we do I have no idea. I'm just
1: going to keep calling myself a student until I'm a physio. (laughs) Just ride it out. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think that's what I'm going with. What are you doing? What's your strategy? That's my my scapegoat. I'm just a student. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, So, all right, guys, we're back at it again with another interview. Um, This week, we are interviewing Greg Lehman, uh, who is a physiotherapist, a chiropractor, a strength and conditioning specialist, um, a gymnastics student. Uh, <laughs> and more importantly, a fellow Canadian. So, Greg, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. You should put put gymnastics student first. That's yeah. the, the primary focus.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love watching your videos on uh, Instagram, seeing you doing all those crazy flips and stuff. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> so, um, why don't you just kind of start off, and I know I'm sure you've done this a million times, but just give a little intro um, <laughs> of who you are and kind of what you're doing currently.
2: Uh well, I, I've been a, a clinician for 15 years, you know, and then I, I guess I've, I've been in the field for at, at least 20. Um, I did an undergrad in kin and then a master's in biomechanics on like manipulation and exercise biomechanics. I've always been into pain science. My, um, I, I even wrote a paper in 1997, this is crazy, on like central sensitization. So this, the, the idea of pain, I know it, it was like, it was in an ergonomics class. I was four. I started writing about pain and nociception and like rabbits losing their limbs and <laughs> phantom limb pain and my ergonomics professor. was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and, and so even then, and I used to read John Sarno, who's like, a, he's sort of the first popular person to talk about the biopsychosocial. He maybe went a little too far. He got rid of all of his physios. Uh, and his thought process was like, if I say pain is due to these emotional factors, then I'm confusing people by making them do all the work with the physios. We actually got rid of them all. And I get it because it is, it is a really a good insight because sometimes we'll have these messages about pain and injury. And then what we're actually doing might be conflicting with that. You know, and I found that in my practice too, by accident, but anyways, and then, and I went to Cairo school, uh, and I was able to be on faculty at the same time, which is weird, and, and teach and research. And I was in practice for a long time, and then I went back to physio school. Um, uh, but then I got a little too skewed to being full a cl- uh, full-time clinician, and I wanted to teach more, so that's why I started teaching again the past uh, four years, I guess.
0: Yeah, the one question I've been wanting to ask you is like, you you do all that you do the research you do your Cairo and then all of a sudden you're like ah I'm gonna go and do PT school what like what was it about the profession that really pushed you to want to be like okay I'm gonna go back to school for another two years
2: um you know a lot of it was just opportunity and it wasn't difficult I lived in Kingston I knew they had a good program there um I liked that some of the teachers that I knew, I, I, I liked them. They're good, good people. And I, I knew I, like, I, I was in practice full time and working full time with two little babies and then was back in physio school so oh, to, 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 to do it. So, um, well one baby on the way. <laughs> that was interesting. Uh, and then, so it, it physio to me, like at, at, at that time with the, Cairo it wasn't that it was getting boring. It's just Cairo. It's very, you're very limited in what you could do. You're always like an independent practitioner or working with a couple other people, and then that's it. You know, physio has all way more opportunities, way more opportunity to travel to work, uh, way more acceptance. You could work in a local health network. You know, you could go work in a hospital. Fewer jobs now than 20 years ago. That's unfortunate. But you know, there's. Uh, opportunities to you know go, go to Europe or Dubai or whatever you, you could completely get out of MSK not that I really wanted to but that opportunity w- was there there's more research opportunities so it was just it was just like all the pragmatics uh, added up so uh, that, but this training was the same you know same concepts
0: right
1: back in the day like uh, I think you said 1997 you you were looking at uh, that pain science central sensitization stuff was yeah like, right what like what drew you and kept you uh, drawn to
2: pain science uh, over the years so this is, this is the thing it 's more biopsychosocial like uh, people kind of knock biomechanists as being so mechanical, but my intro to the biopsychosocial was from occupational ergonomists or biomechanic people, where my master 's in biomechanics the, the big names at the time at Waterloo, like Bob Norman and uh, Bill Maris, and these are the ergonomic people. They were always talking about the psychosocial factors. It was in all of their papers. Like they've sure they focused on the biomechanics, but they were aware that other factors influenced pain and injury. So none of that's been new. And so I was just like, well, if I'm going to understand, and I didn't do a good job at it. I just had like the the kernel of uh, like the thought if I'm going to help people with ergonomics, like I should try to, I, I, what I wanted to answer was, where is the pain coming from? Because I read a paper then in '97. It was it was a case study on disc herniations, not being treated. People get better. They go back in the MRIs six months later are just as bad. So I think that was the spark. Like I read it, not even online because we didn't have computers then.
0: <laughs> no, there was
2: like that's uh, it was um, like so all, all all these these concepts have been around forever. So. You know, they've been trying to, we've been having the same struggle for 30 years mm-hmm. of fitting it all together of what the hell is going on with people.
0: Yeah. That kind of leads you, that's like a good point. Like, why do you think, why do you think we still struggle with that? Like, why is it still something that's, that's going on today, even though we have all this information?
2: Uh, I, I think because mecha- straight up mechanical treatments help, right? So, and they're easier to deliver and they make uh, intuitive sense and people come expecting those so you're fulfilling people's expectations so it's a lot easier just to stay in the world of you have knee pain because your hips are weak right right and then the advanced quote-unquote advanced practitioner will be like well it's not just strength it's the timing of the muscle and we have to work on your motor control and we'll address these factors and get this muscle to turn off in this order so they feel like getting more advanced just means making things more complicated i don't i don't agree with that but um Uh, I I, that that's why I I think we're still stuck in just the simple mechanical route because people aren't really sure what to do to address the psychological factors. Yeah. It's just easier and it helps lots of people. And so people think just stay in your own lane. I'll just do the mechanical stuff and let the psychologist and I'm like deal with deal with fear and catastrophizing. And I'm of the opinion we are the best profession to deal with fear of movement because we're the fucking movement specialist. The fear isn't because it's not fear that where someone has a, a, like a phobia or an anxiety where it's a purely psychological process. It's a, it's a fear related to a belief about injury and the structure of the body and what movement means. And so to me, I mean, psychologists are great. Don't get me wrong, but because it's a fear related to the kinesiological system, well, then we are the people who should be addressing that stuff. Yeah, That's always been, been, been my opinion. That's why I was interested in it. How can we, how can we merge these, these areas? Yeah, I'm on board with that. It's interesting because even some of the
1: mechanical things just straight up don't really make sense. No. <laughs> and I know you've, uh, you've talked about some of that. Some of that has triggered you. Um, one thing I've noticed is the weak glutes idea
2: and inhibited glutes inhibited inhibited
1: glutes yeah and so something i kind of like have seen a lot on clinical placement is like that prone hip extension test uh you know where you're lying down and so i'm just curious to hear you kind of explain why that might not show us what people are thinking it's showing
2: yeah i mean i i always say it's it's not pain science or the psychological research that challenges biomechanics. It's the biomechanical research that challenges the validity of biomechanics, right? So that prone leg extension or prone hip extensions from that's Yanda's test originally uh, was designed to look at recruitment firing patterns. The assumption there was that people had the lower cross syndrome, that they had tight hip flexors, uh, overactive erector spinae, Underactive glutes, meaning the glutes were inhibited and somehow not turning on this sort of idea of gluteal, they don't work. You know, there's some sort of neurological dysfunction. The theory, you know, was that that a tight psoas would somehow inhibit it, inhibit the glutes, which doesn't make sense. Just because the muscle's tight doesn't mean it's creating some uh, muscle activation that's going to go to the spinal cord and create reciprocal uh, inhibition. You know, that's, that's not really how that works. Um, Uh, And and so that the test, the prone leg extension was designed to do that. And we published it. We looked into this in 2004 and there was a paper that is hard to find, but it was from 1997 that did the same thing. And we found everyone had inhibited glutes. The glutes were like, they're not inhibited. It's just, they're always delayed. The hamstring or the erector spine always fire first, Uh, you know, and so it's not really a problem. And then when you look at the literature, all the glutes aren't turning on. There's no real support for that. I don't doubt that the, the, the glutes can be weak sometimes when people have pain. That's, that happens, but so can the hip flexors, so can the glute need, uh, so can the external rotators, so can the hamstrings. Like When something hurts, you often have more weakness, so, and sometimes you don't, but it, it doesn't mean there's some sort of neurological problem and we need to make up some syndrome. I don't think the glutes, sorry, I'm talking a lot, I don't think the glutes are any more likely to be inhibited than any other muscle that exists out there. Like it's not some pandemic of, of faulty, forgetful glutes that, that was my issue. And I, I think strength training can help, but, uh, or changing how someone moves, but it doesn't mean that there's this, it's not some illness in and of itself. Does, does that, does that help at all? Or Yeah. Because I think that's
1: the thing is I always would want to question further. Like there might be so many reasons why this person, even if their uh, their back does seem to have a lot of tone or, uh they're not moving it uh so much. There might be so many reasons why. And like you said, the glute strengthening could still help. I think it's just looking at that test and thinking about, okay, what is this really showing us? Because like that's a that's a hard movement. That's like an end range lift yeah. off. Like I can't there's no way I could do that without turning on my my back so no your
2: back your your back has to turn on it has to it yeah. that's just how we work that's the synergy you try to yeah. do it without your back turning on and exactly. what's funny I think there might be e- even there's some evidence where there's uh, I don't remember now but I, I quoted it before where the erector spinae, if anything they're the ones that are functioning weird when people yeah. have pain yeah the glutes. yeah or the hamstring is is turning on late there's some evidence for that which isn't weird, especially if you have a hamstring strain. So yeah, we just—that's what I mean. The biomechanics always challenge these ideas, and then so you have people out there palpating the posterior chain, saying, "Oh, this muscle's not turning on." You can't tell that. You can't tell 100 milliseconds or 150 milliseconds. You know, you just—you can't do that stuff. You need—you need EMG. Yeah. 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 It's it, it, it's it's so silly. I mean, sometimes, it's but that's the thing. It ends up being simpler. So someone might have back pain. And you teach them to move in such a way where they don't move their back as much, let's say. You find that they're always bending their spine. It hurts to bend their spine. So you teach them to hip hinge and they feel better. Okay, great. So you just stop doing the thing that hurt. Don't say you like their glutes were inhibited and now you taught them to turn their glutes on. Like you just taught them not to do the things that hurt them. Right. Sometimes it's that it's that simple. And then you choose exercises that reinforce that pattern. You know, it's not like one, One is better than the other one is just less painful temporarily and it's that great. It hurts to do that. Don't do it for a bit and then go back and do it later. And I think that's where it becomes an
1: issue is because then you're distracting from what the real goals are. Like if you're so focused on turning on these glutes and you start getting them to walk and they have to turn on their glutes every time they walk. Now you're not aiming to try to get them to be able to pick up a pencil from the floor without back pain you gave them an option with the hip hinge but then you're now not focusing on like what's actually important
2: yeah because you're chasing this assumed pathology yeah rather than just saying let's let's get you moving differently so that you feel better there's no one right way to move there's just different options right right now yeah yeah it's it's always upset me like it's louie gifford said it a long time ago and i wish i knew the man but he said we want people to move like thoughtlessly and fearlessly And now when you have people walking, turning on their glutes, bracing their core, activating their external oblique, trying trying to time it with their opposite lat, you know that's not thoughtlessly, and that's not not fearlessly.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Um, so when, (laughs) uh, so when we took your we took your course, one of the big things that um I really took away from it was this idea of like symptom modification, um. Could you kind of maybe touch on that and give our listeners maybe a little bit of a, an example of how you go about applying that principle and like treating someone?
2: Yeah. So just to give you why, the idea why I focus, sometimes focus on it, it was just sort of like, it, it was sort of trying to respect all these different um, teachers and therapists and schools of thought that are out there. You know, it could be Shirley Sarman's approach, it could be McKenzie's approach, it could be Mulligan's approach, and the shoulder could be Jeremy Lewis's approach. And, and, And they all might kind of disagree on the biomechanics of what they're doing, but I wanted to find what's the common thread? What's the active ingredient of our therapy? It's the same thing with exercise, it's the same thing with explaining pain. What is it that we're really doing to help people? And if you can kind of figure that out, you know, can kind of simplify practice, because now you have like a fundamental, like what needs to change to help this person, right? And so the symptom modification, that seemed to be this common thread across lots of different people who disagree with one another. That's what was interesting, is that they might disagree on the right on the kinesiology. But when they're working with a patient, that common thing is, let's get you moving differently here. Uh, and we'll determine it's the right way to move because it feels better. It's symptom modification. And so that, that's the rationale behind, behind symptom modification, that I don't think you have to do it. Um, I, I would even think sometimes it's wrong to do it because some people are already trying to symptom modify, and then they're chasing that, and then they're becoming afraid of pain and discomfort. So there are a subset of people where you might be messing them up, but for a lot of people, you know, it's like gait retraining. To me, that's a lot of symptom modification. You go for a run, your knee hurts. Let's maybe have you run with a higher cadence. Maybe shift to a foot strike if you're over with your heel. You know, these are all like just symptom modifiers. You can justify them biomechanically, but you kind of know in the end because it's, it's symptom modification. That, that, that's the idea there. It's like there's not a right way to move. It's just there's things that feel better. It's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, and then we get better as clinicians because you're going to learn different symptom modifiers because different things will work for different people. Um, And then I I think the art will come in is you're going to learn when, and we need more research on this, when you don't want to symptom modify, when it's like it's the wrong thing to do and you're messing someone up and you're like, you know what, for a little bit, let's start poking the bear. Like, let's start going into pain. Uh, a little bit it's going to be hard for you to symptom modify maybe like fibromyalgia or maybe like just some low level discomfort and you're screwing them up by always chasing a symptom modification procedure i I think that's where like the finesse and and skill and we maybe need more research yeah no no, No, i
1: think that's something we've actually talked quite a bit about about me and dalton is like trying to figure out uh when you can do a little bit more of that or when certain times you you, some, sometimes you don't even have to sometimes certain yeah. people are okay with having a little bit of pain while they're exercising and you can just like go right into it right yeah
2: yeah i think i, I talked about this i talked about it a lot but I, i'd like to work with people to write a paper it, going into that is when is it okay to poke into pain some people will say if you some people will say if you keep going into the pain you're, you're picking a scab you're going to sensitize the system you'll create central sensitivity peripheral sensitization and I agree with that. Or they'd say, no, you have to respect the tissue. And that tissue needs time to rest, to heal, and then you can start loading it. So it's that question of, like, when is it okay to poke into pain? Yeah. And, uh, like, it would be a really, like, and that's why we do that in the course, right? That exercise is when do you want to back off and when is it okay? And be, it, it'd be a neat review paper to say these are sort of the conditions or general guidelines you know, and no one's done this where you want to back off, where avoidance is absolutely the right strategy. You know, like with rotator cuff repair. There's a six week window where it's okay to back off. Maybe like massive disc herniations where it correlates with the MRI and the symptoms. I'm pretty cool backing off and not doing a lot of flexion or, you know, things that aggravate them. Right. You know, a, a Diabetes, a neuropathy, you know, a charcot Mary tooth like there's maybe there, there's time to, to back off high risk stress fractures, you know, that could go yeah. full stress fractures. We, we, we back off, you know, it's, it's sort of those ideas there. What are the red flags that you want to worry about?
0: For, so
1: uh,
2: let's write the paper, boys. Yeah. <laughs> <wrote>? well, <laughs> sign
0: me up. Mm-hmm. Uh, with regards to that pain, like poking into pain and stuff, I think one of the things that I've struggled with and I'm sure other students and maybe younger clinicians, um, like how do you go about explaining that concept to to the peop- to like the the patients that you're working with.
2: Yeah. So the I think the underlying assumption when we're poking into pain is that we've come to the conclusion that the pain is not well correlated to the damage, and that the pain is this alarm that isn't telling us much about the state of the body tissue. I think that's the fundamental assumption there, or you know, and that that the pain. Can mean that there is damage, but it doesn't mean that you have to rest it, right? That that that's the the fundamental. So you got you got to think that there's some mismatch between you know that the the between this, the perception of pain, um and, and the and the state of, state of the tissue. That that has to be like I I I think, and I, I probably need to think more on this, but the fundamental idea there that it's okay to do it. You're not harming them. So it goes back to that simple truism of hurt doesn't equal harm. And that's it. So if you can, if the patient believes that, that just because it hurt, hurting, doesn't mean I'm harming them. Right. That, and that they're, or they're harming themselves. Right. Then they might, so they'll decide what the, what pain is acceptable by that rather than us telling them. Right. So that there's some questions we ask, like, you know, do you think you'll pay for this later? And do you think you're harming yourself? Right. What do you think is going on when you do this shoulder lift and it hurts? And if they think well, i'm stimulating the tissue to help it heal, but because it's sensitive it's going to hurt for a little bit that means we we keep going, and they don't have a big flare up the next day it's then and then we keep going yeah it also That's,
0: puts puts it on them a little bit too right with the pain thing like if they're they're dictating how much pain is acceptable for them if they if they go too much it's it's on them for going they they they're the ones that went too much it wasn't you telling them to go to a certain point and then it just puts that locus of control on them to know that they can also make that pain better by not doing as much.
2: Yeah. That, that, that's the idea. The other approach, this is sort of the Valet the psychologist approach where, uh, where it's fear that is the big issue. Right. And so they'll do an activity that might be painful that they're not working on controlling the pain. But the point is that, they want to confront their fear with emotion and you ask you know and you so you ask things like are, are you harming yourself do you think you're going to cause more damage and when they do it even when it hurts but they face that fear and then they realize oh there's not more damage it's safe to do and now you start calming down the fear and when you calm down the fear since we know there's an interplay between fear and pain then sometimes that fear is gone and their their pain can be decreased as well that that that's the the ideal so it's 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 this idea. So you have to know for sure as a clinician that it is safe to do that. So you have to believe it yourself. Like there are times where I'm like, I don't want you jumping off of that rock because you just herniated your disc, because I am actually worried you might cause actual harm and damage. Right. There are times where you can't just bull rush in, into this. I had a patient, I, I don't know if I told you guys the story, but he wanted to go rock climbing when his back was feeling better. And he did have a disc herniation. And that's a mechanical thing. That sometimes, And it was pressing on the nerve root. We want to take it easy. And he dramatically felt better. So he immediately want to go rock climbing. And then he jumped off a six-foot boulder. And landing in flexion. I was like, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't want to freak out because I didn't want to freak him out. But I'm like, why don't we ease into that? <laughs> Jump off a one-foot boulder. <laughs> it's really funny sometimes. when I, I, I'll see these patients I'll be like, you know what, for a little bit, let's decrease your flexion. And then I have to say, don't tell anyone I said that. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, But I do know I've had so many. <laughs>
1: no, but I think that is like, I think even in those situations, we can still respond in a way that's not creating more fear. Like when they come back and they've done something that might've been too much for the state of their tissue. Like, I think from what I've seen, a lot of the times we we do start panicking a little bit. And yeah. that does show to the patient, right? Yeah.
2: I would just say, I would say something like that. You've just sensitized yourself, you're not really causing damage. That's what we know. We the body's robust, it can handle these things. It's robust and strong, but it is sensitive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. That, that's like that's another like key message to to, to me to get across to, to people I'm working with. I right? think and that's the whole point of explaining pain is like you understand something. And then you're not worried. You know, if you're in the dark and someone tells you you're on a raft in the middle of the ocean, you're a bit worried about where you're walking. If You're in the dark and someone says, or you don't know where the edges of, you know, the raft are, then you're worried. As soon as you know, you can control it. So it's like that knowledge is helpful and calm shit down. Yeah. I think like, it's
1: obviously something that's like, it's super multifactorial. And that's something that we're, we're kind of learning. So I think it's hard for students to be, um, to feel confident about uh, dealing with this kind of gray area. So I was just wondering if you had just some advice on how we can exude like confidence in the face of like, kind of like uh, these gray kind of uh, situations.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of professions like that. If you're a baker, you know, the things that go into making your cake, but you don't know the chemical processes of how they all work to create that cake, right? And we, so we still have like, and that's what pain is, right? It's this, it's this interaction of all these factors. We know they're all involved, but we also know that you don't have to address all of them. This is the whole point of recognize the robustness, the resiliency of people, right? You can have weakness and not have pain. You can have depression and anxiety and not have pain. It's sort of working on uh, on things that you're comfortable working with and working on the factors that your patients want to work on. And that's great. And so we could say that. We say, all these factors can be involved in your pain. What do you want to work on? And then we say, like, because guess what? There's lots of different ways to treat your pain. Yeah. That's that's how I get confident. Right? And that's why I also become very humble. And I'm like, listen, even if I can't help you, there are, there are other options out there. Yeah.
0: That comes back to that cup analogy kind of that you like to use, right? Yeah. Like what's it, what's in your cup. We can either address some of the things or we can build your the cup up stronger. And, and if you make the people that you're seeing aware of all those factors and you, I, I liked what you said in your courses, like what do you think you can address yourself yeah. in, in these things? And then, then you can identify as a, as a clinician, what things you can help them to address like here in the clinic. And I, I think that that's a, awesome way to look at things and it's helped me a lot when i'm on placement
2: yeah it's sometimes it's just one or two things that have a massive uh, cascading effect you change someone's view of their body and then they start being physically active again and then they start going out with their friends again and they start playing with their kids again and then they have new coping strategies for your stress so what exactly did you do people you just talked to them yeah, but I changed while we worked together and eight things changed by just changing one. Yeah. Right. That's what's so cool.
1: Yeah, that is cool. It it does. It leaves you with way more options and you don't have to feel like there's only one way to go about it. I think that's helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Just knowing like, man, if someone wants to do yoga, why am I going to focus on anything else? I'll just make it all relate to yoga. Totally. I found that has actually really, in some cases, if you can find that thing, mm-hmm. that has really helped uh, drive uh, successful, like.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad because that, you guys, like I always like to ask questions of myself and the patients because that, your question there is, what is it that has to change for this person? Mm-hmm. and sometimes we think there's just one thing and i'm not so sure about that there probably is one thing that's easier to change and that they'll buy into like that's what you did with the yoga thing you know so you can you can work on that but you can achieve that lots of different ways is what i think too yeah for sure there's lots of things that can change to help if there are, and if you choose one thing there's lots of different ways that you can address that one thing so there's lots <laughs> of options
1: <laughs> i i want i've been dying to ask you your thoughts on this because It's something that we learn in uh, school right now. And I think it, it does get a little bit confusing for us. It's the uh, idea of like classifying people with back pain. It's like, we have like, kind of like, you know, like mechanical back pain, hypermobility, hypermobility, and like non-specific. So I've just, I just wanted to hear what your thoughts are on those types of classifications.
2: Yeah. I mean, we probably, I mean, the people will have all of those different things. In the research setting, we don't—they don't—they're moving away from subclassification because there's too much overlap. You could ha- end up having a thousand, you know, subclassifications, so it's not not useful. Rather than two or three or four, so th- those things are just descriptors of the patient state. That's it. And then you have to—and—and and you could have, depending on what you choose to measure, you're going to get a bunch of different descriptors, right? So. The more important question to me is, is it, re- is it relevant and is it something that needs addressing? Yeah, that's right. Cause I feel like you
1: could have somebody with like hypomobility and they have pain, but that might not necessarily be what needs to change in order for them. Yeah. To- they could have red hair
2: too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's no, just yeah. a classifier. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, 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 ha- you have to decide if it matters. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure that. And so that's the other big challenge. When, when is an impairment or a dysfunction or some finding relevant? Uh, And sometimes like, like I don't care about central sensitization. I don't do anything that specifically addresses it, but I I do talk about it because it can help the patient understand why they feel how they feel. Right.
0: It validates that that for them.
2: Yeah. But there's no, there's no special treatment for it. Yeah that's the whole thing it's just you're explaining their story right well you're in terms of science they they already know their story they just don't understand it you're 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 putting their you're getting, giving a positive spin to their story would, would be the idea right that that's what those things help for me that's what they help with me yeah so i feel like cuz
1: that's that falls into that like i guess central sensitization would fall kind of into that uh, chronic non specific and like, this is something where like, I feel like a lot of people when they're with people that don't necessarily know these things, they, they don't get their pain validated. So I'm like curious, like, how do you make sure that you validate someone's pain when it's fallen into this nonspecific category?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll address that if they've heard that and say, oh, cause remember all nonspecific means is that it's not structurally specific. Mm-hmm. Right. And, then I, and I would still say, you know, there's probably still structures involved that are sensitive. We just can never be sure exactly which one. We're going to work on that mechanical structure. We're going to work on your body, but we're going to work on all the other factors. You know, I'll, I'll I'll go through the history and the exam and say, these are all the things going on. You know, let's what, again, what do you want to work on? This is what I think we can work on. So I never, I never just say it's in their head. I just say, you know, you had these structural things that might be contributing your nervous system gets sensitized. This is how that happens. This is one of the reasons we think, you know, that, that you feel the way you feel. So I I say, if if people do talk about structure, I'll give them a couple options. I I don't discount it. I say, yeah, your disc could be sensitive. It could be a muscle back there, but it's not going to change anything. Right. Right? We still have good treatments to help that regardless, you know, and then when you find people moving away from when they say they're not specific, or when they say they are specific, they're not technically structurally specific. They'll just describe what aggravates the person. So you have low back pain that's aggravated with flexion and too much sitting, right? That's that's not a diagnosis either. That's like saying you have stomach pain that's aggravated by spicy food. It's spicy food-induced stomach pain. That's no diagnosis. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like we do have, not. that's a non-specific stomach pain. You just described what aggravates it. So that's what I'll say to patient. This, this is what you have. If it's not specific, these are, this is the constellation of things going on that keep, that seem to be sensitizing you. What do you want to work on? Yeah. I like
1: the pain constellation idea. It just (laughs) came out of my mouth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's going in the workbook tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Greg. So this is the PT Coffee Cast. We love coffee, um, so we ask all of our guests um, this one question. So, our question for you is: How does Greg Lehman go about brewing his coffee?
2: Oh, well, that's funny because we just we just made a big shift in our house. uh Oh, we used to. My wife and I would get two extra large from double doubles from Tim Hortons every day <laughs> in the morning. That was, like, that was my my daily routine, uh, and we just switched two and a half weeks ago. We tried like brewers and the single cups and the Keurigs and they always suck. And and I think we just, we just went for the French press. Nice. But we still suck at it. It still doesn't taste like Tim Hortons. I don't know what it is. (laughs) The cream or.
0: Yeah. You got, it's whatever they put in that Tim Hortons, who knows? It just makes you keep coming back.
2: Yeah. It's so infuriating. (laughs) I think I need someone to like make it for me. Cause yeah. even if you go to Tim Hortons and you go to like one that's out like the Esso station yeah. and you have to like pour it yourself. Yeah. It doesn't taste the same. So I always ask the guy to come from around the counter and pour it for me. <laughs> and it's better. You need someone else.
0: You have to get your kids to start brewing it for you.
2: Oh, my kids suck.
0: <laughs> <a> <laughs> uh, um, okay. So back into the, to the serious stuff, I guess. Um, one thing that I really took away from your course was this idea of being a movement optimist. Um, and one thing that you you said that I really liked was when you're going through like the initial assessment and you're doing like these special tests, um, like flipping them around and using them in a positive way by reinforcing like how strong, um, and how robust, um, people are. So why, why do you think that's so, so important? And, um, when you're, when you're interacting with someone,
2: uh, I think it's huge because that that starts that. Pro- I mean, I think if you have to give it a, a term, if that starts the process of this cognitive restructuring, you know, you're you're giving like we want people to. Often it's exercise, and they need to buy into like loading their body again. And if they're fearful and they don't trust their body and they think that they're they're broken and frail and there's no hope, you have to. I mean, there's there's different ways here. Some people disagree on this, but um, I. I think you have to start giving them some hope beforehand and then they, they buy into your treatment. Uh, and so I, I do that with the physical exam where I'm like, look at, at how great you are. I, I like to I'll try to rule out or, you know, address red flags. I know it's hard to do those things. Like we're not, no one's very good at it, but you know, pointing that out that they're strong, there's probably not a stress fracture. There's probably not infection probably not a disc herniation that's you know causing the problem and you know their knees stable so that that starts the process of cognitive restructuring and to me that's pain science or what quote unquote whatever we're doing with pain science so it's that it's that interplay between changing their beliefs about their body which will permit healthier behaviors like exercise physical activity going for a run going for a walk starting to rock climb again all those things you're assuming that they're missing something in life right that's been huge actually
1: like i found on uh my placements i've started to realize like like you said you can use that to to set good expectations like i've started obviously you're checking like you know just to throw an example out there you're doing a lockman's you want to really make sure like is this acl stable yeah obviously but if it is you can start being like hey your acl seems strong it's as strong as your other knee uh based off of what I'm seeing, this might mean we can start some form of exercise Yeah, pretty soon. And it, it really does like flip a switch in their head where they're like, sometimes, right? Sometimes yeah, of course. things don't always work out, but I've had cases where then they're like, okay, like what type of exercise could I do? And then you're already entering that.
2: Yeah. I mean, like to, to us, you guys will probably know, oh, it's, it's a runner and it's an IT band sensitivity well the patient doesn't always know that they might for some part of them might heard that their aunt has a meniscal tear and she's been walking around in a in a cast and won't go downstairs right and so they're worried about that but they've never expressed that to you but they have that fear and then suddenly and then they tell you that after oh i was really worried about my the cartilage in my knee because my mom has that i don't want to get a knee replacement and you're like oh look how good this is yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, for some people, they don't have those fears, so whatever it doesn't matter. But at, at the same point, too, another idea is doing a good exam does build therapeutic alliance. And then the main point is you do that good exam because if you're going to do explaining pain and people and changing people's view on it, you really want to make sure that there isn't something sinister or something that needs specifically addressing, right? Those things do do exist, right? So. You, you, you have to rule out that stuff that needs, you know, specific fixing.
1: Yeah. It's part of that building that trust is you're, they're trusting you to evaluate them and make sure that everything is okay. You're not just making it up. You're really investigating and thoroughly looking into whatever could be
0: going wrong.
2: Yeah. That's it. Yeah.
0: So, um, Let's talk a little bit about your course. I know you're back in Toronto now for a, a bit of time. What what uh, where's your course taking you over the the next little bit?
2: Uh this fall's a bit a bit crazy. Um, but I, I'm in the the uh, uh, Connecticut like in two weeks, and then I I head off to like uh, Barcelona and then France. Like oh. it, I think I'm there for eight days, but it's six days of teaching or something. It's pretty. Uh, there's, like two courses back to back in Lyon and Barcelona before that then and then uh no. then I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in the world <laughs> yeah it's like two a month usually it is the idea yeah two 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 a month and then in, we're I'm in Toronto December 8th and 9th we just added that cause, oh nice uh, yeah because I hadn't been in Toronto for like a year and I thought we should yeah I think it's a good idea yeah, I think because I in mean, the week before I'm in Amsterdam, which is a pain. I'm not, it sounds great. Oh, you're in Amsterdam. No, no. I'm in the Etobicoke of Amsterdam. Like I'm <laughs> in the, like 30 kilometers on the out, out, outskirts. There's not nothing around. That always happens. I was in Milan. I was at the airport. Before that, again, I was in like the Scarborough of Milan. Like I've never really seen these cities. I literally, I'm so lame because my kids and my wife are here. Like I fly in. And I fly right out. <laughs> I, I went. Okay, I went to New Zealand for two days last February. I flew 24 hours. Oh like, man, that's
0: Friday crazy! Afternoon,
2: Friday afternoon, and I left Sunday night, and then I got back Sunday night in Toronto. Yeah, that was nuts. 24 hours of flying. So, I, like, my travel time was 50 hours, and I was there for 54. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> we obviously like something about it. Like what motivated you to start the course in
2: the first place? I really like teaching. I like, you know, the, the motivation was like I've been online and having debates and it, I had been doing this stuff for 15 years. So the course is just something, wasn't anything new to me, this type of questioning and clinical reasoning, you know, that's stuff I had already done. And, and so I thought, you know, if I'm going to complain about courses I'm taking, why don't I try to provide an alternative? Cause I've been giving lectures for decades um so it's just it was just put putting it all 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 together and saying here here's an alternative like people say well if you're going to critique this what am i supposed to do and i was like all right
0: (laughs) (laughs) one of uh one of the things that we really enjoyed like from your course was just the way that um like coming from a student perspective the way that you made us feel, and I don't know if you realize this, but like the environment was, we weren't viewed as like students or that other people were on a different level. Like we felt like our comments were scrutinized the same way or considered the same way as, as everyone else who might have some people who might've been a clinician for 10 years or five years or, or whatnot. Is that something that you purposely try to, to cultivate? Yeah, or?
2: It, 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 it totally is. Um, I, cause that's one thing I used to hate about chiropractic college. You know, they'd have these your clinician who in his tie and always was doctor this and doctor that, and you were just first name. And I hated that stuff. I'm like, if if you expect someone to call you doctor, then you either return it and you call them Mister or Ms. like they're because once once you're a student, you're in the profession to me, right? When I went, I remember when I went to Waterloo, and I it was Bob Norman again. It was Stu McGill's supervisor. I'm like this 21 year old kid, and he's like hi, Greg, you know, welcome to the program. I'm Bob. You know, he's this 60 year old emeritus professor, huge name in the field. And that was it. You're just, you're, 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 you're part of the fold. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 it was, it was kind of a recognition of that and a reaction against the the Cairo stuff because students you're, you're learning stuff. And technically you're more up to date than the person who's 10 years out. Right. Yeah. And there will actually be things that you know better because once you get out there's certain things you just don't study anymore so i have an anatomy question i just go to a student sure. if i want to hear about the fucking krebs cycle i don't uh, ask me about the krebs like, cycle <laughs> no, and that's a Cairo joke we, they honestly learned it like four or five times in different, different that's places. crazy that's How so that funny
0: yeah and i think yeah, was, so, but,
2: yeah, i do do that on purpose yeah, you know, I, I hate that idea of like what do you know you haven't been out in practice
0: yeah and i think it's helped it helped us like build a little bit of I know confidence in the sense of like being okay with speaking what we think and accepting whether if it's right, great, but if it's wrong, it's also okay that it's wrong and and to take the, the feedback in a positive way and use it um, as we go forward. And I think that's really really helped me. Uh, yeah, good.
2: Uh, I I'm I'm glad to hear that because I've always uh, my issue with continuing education courses is uh, there's like a subset that make people feel stupid first you know uh to try to get people to take the course and yeah. and i i i just think that's silly i think we can you can do so much good by by simplifying things it doesn't mean the processes that, that i work aren't complicated it's just that our treatments don't have to be complex or complicated their treatments can be simple and have complicated effects
0: yeah no no, that's why i've I've always like ever since i took your course i've encouraged like students if they can you know find the time or if you're in town like to go out and take it because it's like a really really good opportunity to learn a bunch of things that were not necessarily being taught in school and to just look at things from a different perspective
2: Um, yeah and hopefully still use the things that you're taught in school just see them in a different framework or different Yeah,
0: exactly that's how it is for sure
2: oh good good sweet
0: uh, yeah. So before we just kind of wrap it up, we, we like to ask people like if there's anyone else you think would be good to have on the, on the, uh, the podcast for a good cup of coffee, who who would you recommend?
2: Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. I end up choosing people like me, which is a bad habit. Uh, sure. <laughs> you know, you, you know, I think of two guys out in the West coast. Uh, I, I like Eric Mira, like, a uh, for the knee and the hip. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, even, um, and Phil Snell, he's actually coming to, to town to teach. He 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 would be more mechanical than me, but Phil does a course on like the disc and disc-related uh, uh, pain, or maybe it's flexion-related pain. But I know what Phil tries to do is take this mechanical model and still be an optimist about it and not create fear. And he, he is aware of the, the psychological processes involved. So, um Phil, Phil would be a good guy too. Phil's a, Phil's a Cairo um, and uh, Eric's a, a physio. Yeah. Cool. Cool.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Definitely keep those people in mind. All right. If you just want to, you know, leave where people can, can access you, your, your website, where they can find information about the course uh, where they can see you doing crazy gymnastic flips.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's just Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my Instagram is just like documenting my tumbling progression and then well, regression uh uh and then i'm on twitter mostly twitter i don't do i'm on facebook but not that much it, it gets infuriating after times uh, and that's old people are on facebook just like me uh, uh mostly twitter that's where i like to talk to people And that's just greg layman and then my website is just greglayman.ca. perfect easy
0: cool all right awesome. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. I know, uh, I know you're a busy guy, and we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. We've been looking forward to uh, trying to have this conversation with you, so we appreciate oh, it. Oh, it's my pleasure. You guys are great.
1: Thanks, Greg.
2: Appreciate Questionals. it. Questionals. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> we try. I thought I was on Canada AM for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Greg. Thanks a lot. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you later.
2: Okay. Thank you. Okay, see you.